Hi, I'm Renelle Golden, and you're listening to the Movie Making Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Audible. As the leading destination for audio storytelling, Audible is an easy choice for audio entertainment. Audible offers new members a free 30-day trial when they use our podcast link to sign up. Head on over to audibletrial.com slash moviemakingpod to get your very own free 30-day trial of Audible today. Today we are here with Joshua Lastine, entertainment attorney, and he is our go-to expert for all things entertainment. How are you doing today, Joshua? Hey, Randall. Hey, everyone. Thank you for having me on the podcast. It's great to be here, and I'm really excited. I'm so thrilled to be able to talk the law of movie making with you, because honestly, as indie filmmakers, as writers, we really need to know. And um, But before we get into like the nitty gritty on our side, I want to learn a little bit about how did you end up an entertainment attorney? Yeah, yeah. You know, I have a very interesting kind of career path. You know, I'm, I'm a very, one of those weirdos that knew basically from the womb that I was going to be a lawyer, that I was going to be- Are you serious? Yeah, I, wow. I, I've known since probably I could walk and talk that I was going to be specifically probably an entertainment attorney. You know, going back to a kid, uh, uh, growing up as a kid, I'm from the middle of nowhere, Iowa, bumfuck nowhere, town of like 300 people. But I grew no up you know, watching movies and televisions and reading books. And, and really, okay. I kind of think my first sort of introduction to the Hollywood system was the old school Star Wars VHS tapes that had for like the very first time the, the, the audio commentary from George Lucas and then executive at Fox Studios, Alan okay. Ladd Jr., who was instrumental in giving George Lucas kind of the green light to get Star Wars made. And then obviously the rest is all history. Right, right. I thought that, that behind the scenes, the, the business and, and legal aspects of getting content made, and they didn't call it content back then, but getting film and TV made. Yeah. Uh, that, that behind the scenes was a world that I really wanted to live in. And, you know, it, watching how filmmakers were so industrious in terms of putting together pieces of, you know, Star Wars and the, the, the practical effects, which would later become the VFX and stuff. Yeah. I just knew from a very early age, I wanted to be part of that storytelling process, not necessarily from a creative lens, but lending my support that I know that, that I'm good at, my, my verbal communication skills, my right. argumentative skills, um, reading, writing. Skill. Yeah. yeah. So, so the things that I knew that I was good at, you know, I was never going to be the actor or writer in the room. But I wanted to be kind of the the go-to person that creatives could lean on as it relates to making film and television, negotiating their contracts, monetizing their talent, and just be an advocate for artists and in general. Did you know when you were younger that there were so many layers legally to making a film? Because there's a lot of layers. I, I didn't. I didn't. It really escaped me until I moved to L.A. and started, you know, practicing entertainment law, really all of the different facets and different buckets so many. that one has to practice as an entertainment lawyer. Yeah. You know, my first job here in L.A. in 2011 was doing music licensing for American Idol. 
So I spent a summer working directly with accounting and business affairs and finance with with American Idol to make sure that the songs that they used on the show went back and paid the music publishers uh, and the master rights holders for the usages in those songs and make sure that ASCAP, BMI, the royalty collectors got their payments as well. Are those Um, things time consuming to clear those kind of things? Very time consuming. Very time consuming. You got to do it way ahead of time? Uh, Actually, this is... I, I maybe shouldn't admit this or not, but it's oh. after the fact. Um, oh, and, got you. Okay. Really, I think my first job, you know, I was sitting there with a with a stopwatch watching the show, you know, recording the visual, vocal, background, vocal, instrumental pieces and how they were used throughout the show to make sure that they correspond with the proper license. Recording is that we are accounting for all of the usages correctly. Now that that was my first job, but that was very different from my second job, which was looking at talent, actor contracts, above the line, you know, executive producer, director deals, looking oh, wow. at their looking at their name, voice, and likeness and credit statements, and making sure that those tra- are transposed correctly, both in the final credit reel of the film, and then as it relates to things like paid advertising, the billing blocks of the film. Oh my God, that's a whole nother level. We don't even think about that. No, some of it doesn't even exist so much anymore as it relates to Blu-ray. Well, there's still Blu-ray sales. I I can't think. (laughs) A much smaller facet of of what the industry was. You know, again, this was 2012 and and I was working for, it was Starz's larger parent company that sold Blu-rays, Archlight or Archlone or something. But anyway, um, you know, those two jobs were very different. Fast forward to the time I worked at Discovery Studios and worked on Ameri- or worked on uh, Ice Road Truckers, um, doing the production oh. and the actual, the physical, let's hire people and get the crew to set and on location, lights, camera, action, which is very different from doing voiceover agreements yeah. and, and merchandise, which is what I did for Marvel Studios. So oh like, my gosh, so you've kind of like hit all those different, I don't even know what to call them. Let's go with layers within layers, the process. Facets, uh, issues uh, within the entertainment industry. I was very intentional to make sure that I tried to touch as many different medias and mediums as possible between film and television and within those buckets, you know, indie film to studio film to unscripted TV to scripted TV to animation. And now, you know, now as it's evolving to short form digital YouTube series, a whole new animal, it's, you know, my job is to kind of stay on the cutting edge and pulse of all of, all of these things as they're happening in real time. I don't know if you saw recently, the really cool thing that Paramount did, but they took the movie mean girls and they spliced it into 23 did uh, see that TikTok videos and That's released so, cool. so my job is to really be on the cutting edge of all of that stuff and to to wow. kind of foresee the trends of where things are going and help actors, writers, directors, producers figure out how they're going to monetize themselves, how they're going to negotiate the best deal within playing in these systems, and then work with media companies, either legacy studios or startup entertainment companies um, in producing content, whether that's short form digital, TV scripted or unscripted, feature films, indeed, to blockbuster. All of it. I have a crazy question for you that just comes to mind and probably the answer is no, but have you ever had a moment in your career where something has come up for you legally to figure out and you're like, oh, is this a thing? Like oh, you every day. stopped it and now? 
every day, every day. Oh, are you serious? Wow. Oh, okay. I didn't expect that. You know, it, wow. it's funny because I think that lawyers have a have a certain perception and or, or, or a yeah. certain way that we're viewed or whatever. I I consider myself to be a highly intelligent individual, and if there's something that I don't know, honest to God, that's important for me to know, and I better out. learn it, and I better right. ask questions. And as it relates to production, you know. It's something as simple as what is a Russian arm, um, you know, that like um, that that's important for me to know on set because I'm negotiating the twos and froms and the rentals for things like that. And the that's a good point. Those on set, if I don't know what a Russian arm is or a best boy or yeah. like, you know, so, yeah. so yes, all the time there are terminology there are legal things especially as it relates to other areas of the law you yeah. know i primarily with contract writing drafting and negotiating and the the confined systems of hollywood but i kind of call this make believe law versus the law that we see law and order on tv the right TV right or in arguing and judge slamming i obviously know and understand a lot of that but i'm not in the trenches and in the nuances of of litigation and discovery. So right, I right. very heavily on, you know, expert attorneys in whatever field. If I have an actor or actress going through a divorce, that's not going to be my, you know, bread and butter, but yeah. I'm going to be there to support my talent and find them the best, you know, divorce attorney. In You're going to help point them in the right direction. Exactly. And speak that's, to the, the awesome. nomenclature and the legalese to make sure that they get what they need. So, yeah, that's that's it's very cool. I, I love what you do because it, it makes us better and safer. Specifically, I know the indie film industry, indie, you know, not the big giant, whatever. But a question that always comes to mind, and I have this debate with a lot of the up and coming, and I'm going to ask you is kind of like, at what point should we engage an attorney in the process? Huh. It's a very loaded question. It's a very complicated question, you know, because because attorneys aren't cheap. We don't necessarily work for free. You know, no. we, I do do a little bit of pro bono work where there are projects that I think might, you know, go further or go the distance or there's interesting elements or exciting attachments involved. But really, you know, it, it's a matter of how important the project is to you and how successful you want the project to be. Because like you can make student films in your backyard. You, people have been making films since the dawn of filmmaking. And with and, cell know, phones, everybody. And nowadays, to you know, everyone's got this in their back pocket. So they're yeah. modern Spielberg. But like, I wouldn't do that if that were my baby. If that were my creative you know, piece that I was putting in the world, into the world for all to see as my creative showcase, mm -hmm. I would want all of my I's dotted and T's crossed so that there's no wrinkle or any sort of surprises after the fact. You know, I'm working with uh, one of my um, um, clients right now. We're, we're doing a $15,000 proof of concept kind of sizzle trailer, short film, you know, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah. And it, and it, it is going to be, you know, hopefully her piece to the world. And we've attached some, you know, more high end profile actors on board and, and, for that, you know, even though the budget is super small, we're making sure that we have all of the agreements lined up in place, especially as it relates to the SAG strike that's going on and everything. Mm -hmm. um, so, so to me, it's more of an issue of like, 
how important the project is to you. So it's what they want to do with it. Like if you're going to put it, what, okay. So let's say it's um, a lot of filmmakers that are starting out, they're building their credentials and a lot of what they make is just going to go into the film festival circuit. At that point, should they make sure that everything's in order, like in regards to their IP and releases? And so I think, you know, again, not to give any real legal advice, but to kind of right, no. generality. Do stuff like that. <laughs> there, there is a California case that was determined quite recently where an actor used footage from one of her demo reels or one of her test footages as a sample piece. This is, you know, me out there. And she was potentially she was huh. sued by the company um, that she shot the piece for. And the court essentially said because she was using that for her own private purposes, for she her own audition reels, she was able to do that. Yeah. Now, again, that that's a very small, limited example. And I think there is some analogy there. But that's not what a film festival is, right? A film festival right. is you're submitting it to judges. There are rules. There's an application process. Sometimes there's an upfront fee. Um, lots of people are going to be seeing. It's going to be it's going to be essentially displayed to the public versus a a casting director watching a self tape. Right. Those are two very different things. So right. I would say it's very important if you're planning on submitting to film festivals to make sure that you have all the legal rights in place. Because in my experience, as you are filling out the application to film festivals, you are representing and warranting that you have all of the rights to, to exploit the film that you made. And if right. you make a statement and it's legally not true, you're in breach of that contract for whatever the repercussions may be. That's true. Say somebody's entering the business, you know, they haven't made anything yet. Would it be advantageous for them to, and this is just me as a filmmaker, thinking money, a producer, you know, would it be advantageous to get like from an attorney, sit down with them and say, I'm going to need a fixed set of documents to get my film going. What do you think I should have in my arsenal to use during every single shoot? You know, like a location release or a model release or something, those simple things. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and that's kind of what we call part of our standard production packet. Anytime okay. we're engaged on a film or TV show, we will draw those documents up, kind not necessarily from scratch, but kind of taking our best forms and templates and standardizing them to, to, to whatever the production is. Yeah. The problem with doing a company size fits all versus a project size fits all is you never know where you're going to be filming, whether it's Atlanta or California or New York or New yeah. Jersey. There are little minute changes that go into every contract. But as a general rule of thumb, yeah, we do offer like for sale production packet templates. And we say, you know, here you go, go with God and grace. Yeah, and this is not you, legal you, advice, right? Not like, legal advice and you not can, the end. <laughs> but we yeah. highly encourage you to come back and engage with us. If anyone has any changes they want to make to these forms, we recommend you seek our, you know, guidance and consultation first. But the beauty of filmmaking is, is that so many people have been doing this for so long that I will meet producers that know, you know, as much about what is going on on the ground from a business and legal aspect as, as I do. And, and that well, really, I, I, I love those clients. Love it makes my job so much Better. easier. Um, but, oh, wow. But, yeah, I feel like, it, you know, it, it, it's interesting to be an entertainment lawyer. I need to know 
so much about the physical making of entertainment, the physical production side of things, and vice versa, those on the ground that are doing physical production have to know about the law. Um, Have you had that opportunity to like be on different sets and see how it runs? Oh, that's cool. That's very I would say, you know, for just about every TV show or film that I've worked on, I'll try to visit set at least one day. Um, I went to Paris to see Patriot, which was an Amazon production. Um, I went to to the set where Matthew Weiner was filming Diane Lane for the Romanoffs, another Amazon show. Um, I saw Patriot. That was a good movie. Well, most unexpected. It was a TV series, I believe. What do you call that now? I don't even know anymore. Short, short series or something. Yeah, it was Um, so good. And and the poor guy. But I I try to grow. I try to show up for. that to just be a presence at least once. Oh, um, it wow. is easier to just kind of coordinate things from behind the scenes. I love that. In an office in Beverly Hills. I went to Atlanta for my last TV project and spent a week there. Okay, so you really on. understand what we're talking about, what we're going through. I love that. I'm never going to pretend to be, you know, as as seasoned or known as a, as a true filmmaker. And, and for that, you know, a lot of people are like, aren't you technically a producer? And, and no, I'll never call myself a producer. I'll right. never try to wear that hat. But my job is to understand what the producers do so well, whether right. that's the creative producers writing the script, the line producers, UPMs on the on the ground, or the executive producers controlling the person. I yeah. have to know what all of y'all do. I love that. I wonder if every all attorneys do that, or if you're like a unique breed. I I don't know, honestly. I would hope that they do, but. It depends because, you know, I do more of a robust range of practice between television and film production and legal and talent representation. That is true. You have so many skills. And I was like, whoa, he doesn't stop. There are a lot of coffee. There are more <laughs> boutique, you know, five percent talent firms that solely deal with representing the actors and, and the writers and the producers. And then oh, there wow. are those law firms that solely represent corporations, the studios, and their behalfs. Um, I like to say that I'm I'm too talent friendly to be a studio executive. Oh. Uh, uh, I understand the producers need too much to be a talent rep. I'm somewhere in the middle because really at the end of the day, we're, we're all trying to make cool stuff and we all want to yes. get paid and have product out there to be the lawyer that stalls projects and negotiates things down to their teeth so that no one has any fun and no one makes any money. Like I, that, that never under, that never clicked or jived with me. No, no. I love that. Um, okay. Here's a kind of a loaded question and it, and it might, be difficult to answer but i always have wondered this so how much percentage wise should a filmmaker producer who's ever making that budget what do you think we should allocate of the total film budget towards our legal do you know (laughs) so so it's interesting because i think that you know you have to be very clear about what that total legal budget is going to cover if you're talking in terms of full spectrum legal, which is stoop to nuts, you know, doing the financing deals, establishing the LLC, getting the development paperwork together through 
final credit rolls on production, lock, cut, and film, and then you include on top of that music and final legal delivery. Oh my God, I didn't even think of all of that. Yeah. That is, that is a full spectrum, minimum two and a half percent of two and the half budget. Percent? I'm going to um, write it down, make sure I did it. <laughs> Oh, and, okay. and again, you know, it depends on what that budget is. If it dips below five million or below a million, those numbers start to become like a little different order to justify at the two and a half percent range. If you have an ensemble cast of ten, you know, thespian actors that all need bespoke deals, all A listers or something, you've got yeah, yeah. Obviously, but the bigger the budget, the bigger the buyout, the easier it is to accommodate those things. We always work with our filmmakers on a, on a no-size-fits-all kind of spectrum um, and try to measure out what it is that they need us to reasonably handle. We yeah. have a lot of filmmakers. You know, we work with uh, Inspiration Films, INSP um, Studios out in Carolina. They're a really big company, and they like to handle all of the day-to-day production aspects of filming themselves. But we handle all of the actor talent negotiations because they don't want to do that part of it. They don't want to deal with the Hollywood side of things. We'll step in to solely negotiate the actor deals on behalf of the studio, and then we'll let the studios and the producers and their internal teams negotiate others. and whatever. Okay. Um, same thing with like the indie film that I'm doing now. You know, it kind of like what you're saying, going back to the production templates, I give them a, a template forms here and there, and as long as they can get them Make signed sure done. my review, I don't. We don't have to go back to the well every time. Oh, that's good. Let's say a filmmaker is talking to A-list union talent, or or not even A-list, but a strong, you know, recognizable, I love them all, A-list or whatever the other letters are. I think they all matter. But let's say they get to the point where they're ready to start talking. And I know that the unions have their own set of documents, but often the higher up, you know, the talent is on the the chain there for lack of a better word there's going to be additional like contracts or agreements and at that point should a filmmaker prepare their own deal deal memo and stick with just the sag documents or do they really need to bring in the attorney to iron out these there's a lot of details so Every production needs to have their standard internal guild paperwork signed and figured out. So every actor that touched that needs to sign a SAG deal memo. No but that contract should not be relied upon as the producer's end-all, be-all contract for engaging that performer. Okay. Um, you know, it is quite frequent that, you know, when we're building out the the production packet, the templates for producers, they have their standard SAG de- uh, one day, three day, or weekly yeah. player. Yeah. But what we'll provide them with is supplemental additional terms, standard okay. terms and conditions that have to go on the back of all of those deals. Okay. Because at the end of the day, if you're turning this product over to a distributor, they may need robust requirements as it comes to promotion and advertising and merchandising and marketing and all of these things that maybe your small film doesn't think about that needs to be included in a contract. Okay. Um, going back to regaining my train of thought, number one rule I always tell producers, never sign any paperwork that an outside third party gives you. Always provide and use your own paperwork for whatever it is that you're doing, including the SAG forms and blah, blah, all that. That's what um, I was getting at. Thank you. <laughs> the higher the up the talent is, the more the agents and managers and their talent attorneys are going to expect to see long-form contracts that yeah. memorialize the terms of things like back-end or merchandise or how you can use name, voice, and likeness. Yeah. No, you're going to probably have okay. to 
<laughs> the bottom line is we we need them yeah and and you know i and, and I it happens you know That's people will come to me after the fact and they'll say hey we just had them sign sag deal memos now we're getting ready to do legal delivery but our distributors like hey we need long forms we, so we, we have to do them after production or you can do them after production but you have to know that that you're you know you're kind of in a rock and a hard place with negotiating because if you can't get them to sign the long form you're kind of sol you're so, yeah would you know cover something like that in the event that happened you still have the sag deal memo so you still okay. have some protection but you're not going to have it, it, it's going to be hard for lining up a distribution deal it's scary it's going to be hard, gonna be oh, hard wow. to satisfy satisfy the uh, distributors um, delivery. Wow. Okay, I'm going to ask you about um, screenwriting because, uh, you know, I'm a writer and, and one of my things is, and I probably do overkill, but I typically register with the U.S. Copyright Office and if it's something a lot of people are going to have their hands on, I will also register the same script with the WGA. I don't know that that's necessary, but what are ways that writers can protect themselves? Because we got to share our work to sell our work. That's a great question, and it's a question that I'm asked frequently on these podcasts. You know, how can artists really protect themselves and their work from being stolen, misappropriated, infringed upon, et cetera? And the real answer to that, or, or the macro answer to that that I'm going to give, okay. is that there is, there is no way to, right. per, to carte blanche protect yourself from being infringed upon, IP, have your IP stolen, whatever. China okay. can steal your IP yeah. whenever they want. Taylor Swift, you know, goddess of the world, cannot go to China and have them monitor and force American copyright protection. Right, right. You know, anyone can can find an idea and find a way to adapt it, transform it, and try to make it their own, especially as it relates to semi-generic ideas. You yeah. know, deep impact a lot of those. came out the same year. The what was the the candy um, the Jessica Beale version of the story of the of the the whole mother who committed murder. Jessica uh-huh. Beale did a version of Candy, and then Elizabeth Olsen did a, a, a version of Candy. Yeah, so, so there really is no way to carte blanche protect yourself yeah. if, if someone is ripping your music and streaming it on another platform. You can get statutory damages if you filed for copyright protection. Oh, so okay. There are things that you can do to set yourself up to be in a more winning situation. If someone does infringe and like and, and like you said, filing for copyright protection is probably the most important because it gives you a, a presumption of authorship, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, like it's like if you're the one that submitted the copyright filing and it's your name on the copyright and you go to a judge and the judge is like, eh, your name's on it. That's yeah. going to be a pretty strong pre- presumption that you own the copyright for someone right. to try to overcome and rebut. Yeah. Additionally, if you file within a certain number of months or, or whatever from creating the work, you get statutory damages, so you don't have to prove harm. Oh. And you get money for you know people doing what I like to call copyright infringement per se, or just outright copyright infringing. Right. Where I think people really want to find protection is in this idea of substantial similarity at which point it is damn near It's like writing music. There's only so many notes and keys on there. Now, I typically, um, when I register my screenplays, I do it upon the first draft, even though my draft's going to go through edits and rewrites and all of that stuff. 
and this is probably advice and you shouldn't probably have to tell me, but I'm going to ask anyway, but do, do all the rewrites and revisions need to be copyrighted as well? There's a lot of different schools of thought and you can okay. also update the copyright as you go along. If I were to give you a do as I say, not as I do kind of answer, okay. I think that what you're doing is perfect in copywriting the first initial draft. Again, do as I say, not as I do. I don't necessarily think that that is 100% of the time always necessary, nor do I encourage my clients all the time to go out and do that. Right, but it's, right. But it's more, and it's, it's putting your best foot forward. Well, then um, I can start telling people about it is how I look at it. And as a writer, I think if someone steals my idea, they steal my idea. I'm a writer. I'll write something else. And, and that's the only way I can have a certain peace or calm in it because it is that kind of industry. And that's absolutely true. You know, it's, it's really about the execution of the idea versus the idea itself. Yeah. I have an idea for like a space racing spaceship type thing, you know, but that yeah. is a very generic carte blanche idea. And it would only be my expression of how of my that idea of that. Yeah. that would qualify for, you know, robust copyright protection. And I'm not going to stop yeah. someone else from going and making their own space race, whatever. Yeah. Um, um, and then kind of the same way as it relates to public domain characters, you know, you got characters like Zorro and Dracula and Tarzan, the individual, King Arthur, the individual interpretations of those are going to have protection. Right. Anyone be allowed to use those characters. Right. Right. I had read this question that um, I could ask you this. What are three questions that anybody should ask an entertainment attorney before they hire them, I guess? I'm going by memory, but, you know, I read that somewhere. <laughs> um, oh, goodness. Uh, I guess the number one would be, do you do free consultations and how much do you charge? <laughs> oh, oh, that's a good one. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Um, that's a good one. And, and do, you, do you have the expertise and knowledge and background to handle the issue that it is that I'm facing? You know, I have a lot of times people will come into my office and be like, hey, you know, I was on set and I was hit by a truck. Can you help me? I don't. Maybe do not. Not, I mean, like, sure, I can probably a write a demand letter, or I can start the processes of you know finding drive them to the hospital. I can drive you to the hospital. <laughs> I can do moral support. I can tell you an, a personal injury lawyer to call, but that's not really what I do. I negotiate right. contracts and deals, and while I do do settlement agreements. Like if, if my studio were to hurt somebody on set, I would draft the settlement agreement for that. I'm not really the one to take it to the studio and be like, you hurt my client and we're, you know, I'm the lemon lawyer, the guy that's all over, you know, bus around LA. Yeah. So I'm sure they actually cover the specific area that you need them to cover. Okay. Very important as well. And really, you know, I think to me, finding the right enter entertainment attorney is really a personality mix. I've had lunch with Margot Robbie's attorney, and his relationship with Margot is very different from the relationship that, you know, Fred Tothic might have with Andy Taylor-Joy or something like that. And it's like, it's really about what you're looking for in an attorney. Okay. And, and for me, I am super hands-on. I'm super involved. And my clients know that they can text me and call me and that I care. Um, yeah. Other people want to see attorneys that have, you know, high in the sky century city office in a fleet of corporate suits that can bring a lawsuit at their you know whim 
yeah. that's not necessarily me. Um, so, so finding that right person, I guess, in terms of personality and what you're looking for is, is, is extremely important. That's, that's good to know. Good stuff. I love talking to you. One last question and then anything you want to share, I would love to hear, but, but should people be looking for an entertainment attorney that's like in their backyard? Like, you know, does it have to be local or can it be one of the regions that are the hot spots in the country for entertainment? I would highly recommend trying to go with the most experienced and most seasoned attorney, no matter where their geographical location is. Um, I have made shows all across the world from Russia to Romania to Israel to Cuba to Colombia, Canada, United States, New York, Atlanta, Albuquerque, et cetera. So they just Um, need the right person for the job. They need to find the right person for the job. Caveat that, that being said, if you are trying to get production tax incentives, you may have to hire local in order to qualify. But in that case, what we usually do is we we correspond and work directly with the boots on the ground attorneys. Okay. Don't have enough staff or it's not enough of their book of business to make it a full time gig. And they'll have someone, you know, dedicated on the side to it and we'll work in tandem with them. Um, especially when we film in other countries. If I'm filming in another country, we almost are, are 100% needed to get an attorney in that country to work with and liaise um, as we negotiate deals in that country. Yeah, I have a possible thing that we're, we were looking at doing in the UK for this film I wrote, The Demon Daughter. And we were talking about how do we do that? How do you do a co-production agreement with another country? But that's a whole nother show, I imagine, like a whole bunch of stuff. So, um, Joshua, where can people like find you, hire you, learn about what you know? Yeah, yeah. So you can find me on my website. I'm at uh, LastingEntertainmentLaw.com. Super easy to find. I'm also on Instagram at LastingLaw. Oh, I I know how to spell that. Yeah. (laughs) As as the the WGA strike obviously has concluded, and as the SAG strike starts winding down, we're looking to gear up into production. We are looking to start attaching actors um, and close out writer deals and get the wheels of production moving on film and TV projects, as well as working with talent who are now going back to work for the first time in several months, making sure that their actor, writer, director, producer contracts are all in line. If it's a TV show or, or a production, we usually will work on a on a percentage of the budget basis or an hourly or a flat rate. If it's okay. a talent client, we'll usually do our traditional 5% that any other talent lawyer would. Okay, very, very cool. I have loved having you here. And if you're up for it, I have a tradition with all of my guests. And I ask them five goofy questions the last few minutes. You you ready? Please, please. Okay, the fantastic. <laughs> I bet I'm not as good at, at asking these as you are because I'm not very, I'm, I'm more like free form talking nonstop. But okay, here we go. Question number one. What is your favorite food? Mmm. <laughs> cookies. Any kind? Just cookies? Chocolate chip cookies. Oh, that's that's good one. Those are like comfort food from growing up. That's sweet. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Although cookies don't love me. Um, <laughs> your next question is, what is something that inspires you or motivates you in life? Not related to filmmaking or law, please. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, um, my wife inspires me quite a bit. Um, she's my best friend. She's my cheerleader. She's my confidant. 
Um, she helped me build this law firm and we're co-partners uh, within the law firm itself. Oh my God, I love that. Um, she just takes on so much and she's so giving without asking anything in return. So yeah, my wife really inspires me. Aw, you guys are a better duo. Yeah, I hope she's try. nearby. She's gonna be like the check. She's, she's at home. She'll 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 hear this month later. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. That's so sweet, though. Okay, next one. What is something in life that you have always dreamed of doing but you haven't done yet? I want to go to the Egypt pyramids. I want to go to Egypt, and um, you know, I'm a very big ancient world history. Um, fa- I don't know if you call it fan. I'm not a savant by any means, but I, I'm a studier of ancient world history. Ancient. World I love history. it. And I would really like to go spend some time um, in a place right now that probably won't be accessible <laughs> accessible for, yeah. for the for the near future but you know what it can be on that bucket list you're young you can keep it on there right yeah, for a little while yeah. that's a good one i love that okay N- number four what is your favorite song to sing when you're driving in your car you're in new york you might not even drive right are you in new york no, I'm, in, I'm in la i, I definitely oh, do God. drive okay. so um, um Folsom prison by johnny cash oh my god i know an artist that remade that it, it's a kick-ass can i cast kick-ass song yeah Yeah. oops but yeah (laughs) that's a great song i love that okay fun fun driving music it is banjo is good driving music yeah it's got that rhythm or something a little blues a little rock and roll you know um okay what is last question your favorite movie do you have one oh gosh um (laughs) You know, I have a list of like 10 or 15 that I keep on hand readily. Um, I would probably have to say Empire Strikes Back or Star Wars in general, because I really do feel that I owe so much of your inspiration, entertainment lawyer and influence from just watching not even just the movies themselves, but really the behind the scenes and how they practically that film together with chewing gum and duct tape that really got me excited about, Hey, they're, they're blue collar. Oh my God. You know, and they're just like me and my friends. They just put things together with popcorn balls and chewing gum and stuff. And and that's cool. That exposed me to a large. I didn't know that. There's a documentary on it. Yeah, there's tons of documentaries on the. Oh my god, I didn't know that. I mean, they were on such a shoestring budget, and all of the ways that you know, all of those '80s movies were just so inventive in terms of how they made practical effects. That I'm just, I'm I'm floored all the time. Very, very cool. Well, you have been awesome to talk to. And, you know, I wish you success. I know you're going to get really busy really soon. So let's hope the uh, strikes end soon. But thank you for spending all the time with me today. And um, I look forward to hopefully talking to you again in the future. Yeah, thank you for having me. We'd love to do it again soon. Thank you, audience. Thank you. Have a great day. Movie Making with Rennell Golden is brought to you by Samira Entertainment, supporting indie films and the filmmakers who create them. Stop by their website to learn more, www.samiraentertainment.com. That's www.samiraentertainment.com. You've been listening to Movie Making with Rennell Golden. Be sure to come back for our next episode where we bring you the people who make movies you love. Got a topic about filmmaking you want to hear on our podcast? Send us an email at moviemakingpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.